Hi, you're listening to Square Two, a podcast building upon Square One, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, as taught by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Here you will find insightful, restored Church of Jesus Christ thought concerning the important issues of the world today. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Today's episode features an article entitled, Harlots in the Great and Abominable Church, Marginalization of Women as a Hallmark Sign of the Devil's Work on the Earth, by Emily Bell. Published in Square Two, Volume 13, Number One, and read by Sean Canney. As a child with limited exposure to blatant evil, in my perspective, a harlot was the pinnacle of wickedness. I'm not sure if I was ever explicitly taught this in church, but this term was used to describe women who preyed on men with their insatiable lust. This fits well with another false concept I learned that when a woman falls from grace, she falls farther than any man ever can, because she is inherently purer. A third lesson learned through so-called virtue lessons was women are responsible not only for their choices and actions, but also many actions of men. I was taught men are mere victims of emotions, thoughts, and physical reactions. These principles were built upon perhaps less aggressive but no less harmful lessons about the precarious state of the virtue of young girls. I've included some examples from my youth. Boys were allowed into dances and sloppy clothes and hairstyles in my home stake, while girls were compelled to kneel before chaperones to prove appropriate skirt length. If they didn't meet the cut, they weren't allowed in the dance. A boy in a tank top was never immodest, just probably going through a rebellious phase. An innocent motivation adults would laugh at behind the scenes, sure it would pass. A girl in a tank top, however, was deliberately choosing clothing to entice boys for sexual reasons by showing parts of her body that didn't have to be shown and became a warning for other girls. Leaders nearly didn't allow me to wear my one-piece swimsuit with board shorts and a towel from the waterfront to my tent at girls' camp because a family with boys had arrived in camp for a girl's birthday and they didn't want to make the boys uncomfortable or have them see me immodest. I was given no alternative, and because I had not been instructed to bring a t-shirt and knee-length shorts to the waterfront, I felt stuck. How could I return to my tent to change? Lessons on modesty in youth classes and firesides were rife with refrains of the well-worn philosophy that girls had a deep responsibility to protect boys from the bad thoughts born of seeing girls dress immodestly. I remember feeling a loss of respect and deep pity for these boys who apparently lacked the capacity to control their thoughts. Simultaneously, I started to feel a deep distrust in girls who would expose shoulders, thighs, back, or chest. After such strong commentary on women's sexuality, a wave of discomfort and anxiety naturally accompanied the words harlot and whore during my preteen years in church, and still did until recently during my Come Follow Me and April 2020 conference study. I focused on that feeling to understand my reaction to 1 Nephi 13, 6-9. These verses reference harlots as part of the identity of the great and abominable church during the latter days. Quote, And it came to pass that I beheld this great and abominable church, and I saw the devil that he was the founder of it. And I also saw gold and silver and silks and scarlets and fine twined linen and all manner of precious clothing, and I saw many harlots. And the angel spake unto me, saying, Behold the gold, and the silver, and the silks, and the scarlets, and the fine twined linen, 
and the precious clothing and the harlots are the desires of this great and abominable church. And also for the praise of the world do they destroy the saints of God and bring them down into captivity. End quote. I think I subconsciously defined harlot with my preteen idea of scantily clad women who deliberately entice men for the intent to steal their eternal salvation through lustful acts. This sounds dramatic, but I insist that a harlot was the ultimate villain to me as a child, raised as I was in my culture. In my initial perspective, God was using the idea of fallen women to describe the worst of Satan's temptations and efforts to make the rest of us fall. However, as I matured spiritually, I took a step back and applied new knowledge. In 2017, I interned with the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. There I learned from overwhelming primary research and personal accounts that contrary to this idea of a harlot as predator, most women engage in sex as a commercial act commonly known as prostitution, do so out of fiscal, relational, and physical desperation. For example, they are often trafficked, blackmailed, raped, drugged, and otherwise coerced and forced to begin and continue in the industry. The rate of murder is manifold times higher for women in the sex industry in comparison with those unaffiliated with it. One researcher I spoke with compared the sex worker movement to a reverse imitation of the Occupy Wall Street movement. The 1% of the sexual industry consists of privileged women with the luxury to choose the profession and who maintain freedoms necessary to lobby for their chosen occupation. This idea of prostitution is in line with the idea of the predatory woman in full control of her agency, wielding it with no hesitation to cause the downfall of the sons of God. In contrast, the 99% women having sex for money do so out of desperation, poverty, addiction, fear, despair, ignorance, or slavery. Frequently, they are also forced to participate in the production of pornography, trafficking other humans, selling drugs, and are frequently victims of sexual and physical violence. Understanding the inherent bondage that accompanies the women engulfed in sexual exploitation consciously changed the connotation of the word harlot for me from an, one of evil, fallen, degraded womanhood to a notion of stolen or bound agency. The pieces snap together. If, one, the great and abominable church represents any philosophy or organization that opposes belief in God. Two, Satan is the founder of any philosophy or organization that opposes belief in God. And three, harlots, riches, captivity, and destruction of the saints of God are the desires of the great and abominable church or philosophy created by Satan. Then, Nephi, Isaiah, and ultimately God were not naming prostitutes as Satan's partners fighting against the plan of salvation nor were they laying the blame for all sexual enticement and commerce at the feet of women. Contrary to my childhood assumptions, in these verses our heavenly parents clearly teach us that a hallmark sign of Satan's evil and degrading efforts on this earth is the marginalization, minimalization, silencing, abuse, slavery, and murder of women, especially for sexual power and gratification. The following chapter of Nephi, verses 16 and 17, further support this hypothesis. Quote, Behold, the wrath of God is upon the mother of harlots, and behold, thou seest all these things. 
And when the day cometh that the wrath of God is poured out upon the mother of harlots, which is the great and abominable of all the earth, whose founder is the devil, then at that day the work of the Father shall commence in preparing the way for the fulfilling of his covenant, which he hath made to his people who are of the house of Israel. End quote. This verse elevates the idea that the marginalization of women is a trademark consequence of the Satan's malicious intent, from a hypothesis to a knowledge that the marginalization of women is his intent. Using the word mother, the Lord and Isaiah suggest the deliberate creation of enslaved women. Like a child who hasn't played a part in their own conception, harlots are often created not of their own will, but of women acted upon by circumstances beyond their control including others' often forceful agency. Note that the wrath of God is not poured out upon the harlots, but upon their creator, or founder, mother, who is the devil. Perhaps Lucifer's violent pursuit of women indicates his wrath at choosing to not receive a body, or jealousy arising from his forsaking the opportunity for a covenant relationship with an eternal companion. Perhaps underlying his daily and global torture of the collective figure of women, is his unveiled knowledge of the majesty of Heavenly Mother and our Christ-promised potential to become as she is. Whatever his reason, the Book of Mormon clearly delineates women as central targets of the adversary's evil work. In soothing contrast, we know that during Jesus Christ's mortal life, he liberated women in constricted life situations, widows, ill women, unmarried women, young girls, etc., embraced women who came to him weighed down by the abuse heaped on them by the politics and culture of the time, and elevated women publicly above synagogue elites and political leaders. In a few poignant and frequently cited stories, he won. Stop the stoning of the woman caught in adultery. As is common today, the prostitute bearing the brunt of legal ramifications and the John bearing none and invited her to wield her own power to change her life. 2. Discuss the life situation of the woman at the well, without disdain, and with unshakable knowledge and poignant awareness of her divine prototype. 3. Lifted up the women with an issue of blood, to celebrate her powerful faith, interrupting his journey to heal the daughter of an influential male leader of the Jewish community, which led to 4. Raised Jairus' daughter from the dead permanently answering the age-old question that a daughter is worth as much as a son, regardless of cultural belief. Disciples can successfully combat Satan's efforts to marginalize women by following Christ's example. We must track, call out, and work to end the exploitation of women as the Savior did. In light of these criteria, Dr. Valerie Hudson's Women's Stats Project sprang into my mind as an excellent tool already engaged in this work, as it maintains detailed global research on the well-being and liberty of women. When we empower women by freeing them from generational and societal bonds, Satan, the pimp behind it all, can no longer hide in the shadows. By applying our combined knowledge of eternal principles and mortal realities, we will more consciously give place no more for the enemy of our souls both in our societies and hearts, as we liberate literally half of the children of God from their current horrors 
we'll experience more fully the fulfillment of President Kimball's prophecies of women in this dispensation. Quote, Much of the major growth that is coming to the church in the last days will come because many of the good women of the world will be drawn to the church in large numbers. To the degree that the women of the church are seen as distinct and different in happy ways from the women of the world. Someday, when the whole story of this dispensation is told, it will be filled with courageous stories of our women, of their wisdom and their devotion, their courage, for one senses that perhaps just as women were the first at the sepulcher of the Lord Jesus Christ, righteous women have so often been instinctively sensitive to things of eternal consequence." End quote. This has been a recording of Harlots in the Great and Abominable Church, Marginalization of Women as a Hallmark Sign of the Devil's Work on the Earth by Emily Bell. Originally published in Square Tomb, Volume 13, Number 1, Spring of 2020, and read by Sean Canney. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and website are credited and it is used for non-commercial use. If you would like to read a printed version of this and other articles on Mormon thought, please visit square2.org. That's S-Q-U-A-R-E-T-W-O dot O-R-G. Thank you for listening.